Hello, everyone, and welcome to the American Blue Economy Podcast. I'm your host, Admiral Tim Gallaudet. I'm the CEO of Ocean STL Consulting. I'm a former Deputy Administrator of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, or NOAA. I also was the Assistant Secretary of Commerce, and before that, the Oceanographer of the Navy. We're a monthly offering by the American Shoreline Podcast Network and brought to you by Coastal News Today. The American Blue Economy podcast brings together leading voices in the ocean, coastal, and Great Lakes-based economies to expand awareness and collaboration, identify positive solutions to address the many challenges to the ocean economy, such as conflicting uses and climate change, and provide thought leadership to encourage blue solutions that will help reverse the ongoing economic downturn. In today's episode, we are going to explore nature-based solutions to coastal resilience and hazard mitigation as components of the American blue economy. Now, although our focus is coastal resilience, the term nature-based solutions refers to sustainable management and use of natural features and processes to tackle socio-environmental challenges such as climate change, water security, water pollution, food security, human health, biodiversity loss, and disaster risk management. So it's a broad topic. I think we're going to focus mostly on the coastal areas here. And uh, before we begin, though, I'd like our listeners to know that our media team at Coastal News Today is looking for sponsors. If you're interested in becoming a sponsor, please contact Tyler Buckingham at tyler at coastalnewstoday.com or go to coastalnewstoday.com slash advertising. Well, I am just delighted to introduce three guests from different areas or sectors that are all doing great things in the area of nature-based solutions. And first up, I want to introduce my, my former colleague at NOAA and friend and just all around fantastic person, uh, Jennifer Steger, who is the Pacific Regional Manager at NOAA's Restoration Center. Jen, it's so great to reconnect with you. Oh, hello, Emeril. I am so grateful for a chance to reconnect with you as well and excited to chat with the folks that are on the panel. Thank you so much for this opportunity. Oh, my pleasure, Jen. Uh, awesome. Well, next in line is Dr. Ido Sella. He is the CEO of Econcrete, and it is fantastic for him to join us. Ido, thank you for being here. Thank, thank you for inviting me. Very happy uh, to be here. Right on. Okay. And then lastly, definitely not least, we have Dr. Bernard Regal. He is Professor and Chair of Marine and Environmental Sciences and co-director of the Florida Climate Institute and director of the National Coral Reef Institute at Nova Southeastern University in Fort Lauderdale. Bernard, thanks for being here. Admiral, thank you very much for having me. It's a great pleasure and privilege to be here. Well, all right. I love everybody's positive attitude. I share it with you. And let's begin with Jen Steger uh, with NOAA. And you're in NOAA Fisheries Office of Habitat Conservation, an office I just love and still do follow. Um, can you just talk broadly about what, what you do in the Restoration Center and um, as it pertains to nature-based solutions, Jen? Oh, sure, Admiral. Thank you. Um, yeah, and it's I, I feel pretty privileged to join you in this kind of an arena because you've had a couple of my um, leadership on your podcast before, Pat Montano yes. and then the folks from mm-hmm. Sea Grant. So it was pretty honored right. to be in this little cadre that you've created. Oh. Um, as you said, I do work for the for NOAA Fisheries in the Office of Habitat Conservation, um, and in that division um, is the Restoration Center, um, which is the division that I work for, and we handle restoration projects in my region, our geography, from the Pacific Islands 
doing coral restoration and um, upland re restoration around land-based sources of pollution all along the West Coast with salmon recovery and dam removals up to Alaska with aquaculture and some kelp restoration and things along those lines. So I feel really, really lucky to be able to engage in all types of restoration across the country and across this region um, and feel pretty comfortable in saying that we try our best to incorporate nature-based solutions in everything that we do, um, especially when we're working with Indian tribes that have local um, ecological knowledge that we import into our thinking. So it's, it's, a, it's an amazing job. It's, it's one of the best jobs in the world, I think. Uh, I, I agree. I've been all around the country, you know, seeing some of your office's work. And I, I love on your LinkedIn profile, you have the, you have the best um, uh, moniker. It's restoration is habitat forming. Um, kudos to you for that. Thank you. It's a truth. Now, I, it is. Yay. Uh, we'll talk more. Uh, that's just an overview. Let's get to Dr. Ido Sella at Econcrete. Uh yeah, just can you give us an overview of your company and your product as a nature-based solution in view of the fact that it was your media team that reached out to me to even give give me this idea of having an episode on it. So thank you. No, sure. And, and uh, really, really happy to, he to be here, Admiral. Um, uh, what we do in, in Econcrete, and, and maybe uh, uh, before that, is, is how we started it. Um, I'm one of the co-founders, both of us are marine biologists that, that dealt for you know, the last decade on, on the impact of coastal construction on the marine environment. And at a certain point, we, we started to focus on concrete because uh, concrete structures and concrete infrastructure are usually associated uh, with a negative impact on marine environment because of low biodiversity and, and dominance of invasive species and also impact on water quality. And when you, when we, and, and it was, there was a time that we analyzed different infrastructure worldwide and and what we got was amazing. This this material is 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 basically responsible for seventy percent of coastal infrastructure worldwide, and and that was a point that we we started to focus on concrete because because it's it's it 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 really for us as biologists it, it was the right thing to do if we can basically find a way to deal with this material that is widely used and support ecosystem services. And that was uh, ten years ago. Um, what we do in eConcrete is basically provide a technology that can be integrated into any concrete casting and be in com full compliance with uh, the industry standards for uh, uh, longevity and, and, and construction requirements, uh, but at the same time uh, create an ecological uplift, which means that we are able to support more species, sessile communities on, on that grow on the concrete. Um, and because of that, also support other species, model species that are interact with, with the infrastructure. And we're doing this on, on working waterfronts and, and, and city waterfronts and, and basically uh, allowing to bring back ecosystem services to those areas that in the past were, uh, uh, could provide that uh, before coastal construction. Mm, that's it's so interesting to me. And I, I love that, uh, Ido, because... I'm working with some other companies in the ocean weather tech and uh, space tech arenas. And uh, the innovation that's happening in, in the private sector is really astonishing. And I love that we have a company here in yours that's innovating, but it, with such a, you know, an ecological based uh, approach. Uh, so awesome. We'll, we'll explore more on that. And, uh, but let me then now introduce uh, Bernard Regal who uh, is, uh, you know, and I've told this at many episodes before, my daughter is a graduate of Nova Southeastern University and minored in marine biology. She majored in communications. She's in grad school now. 
And, and so I got to know some of the professors, uh, some of the colleagues of Bernard there, and it's just a first rate marine and environmental science program that you chair. Um, so just tell us a little bit about your, 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 your jobs there and uh, what you do, especially with respect to coral. Well, Admiral, thank you very much. Also, congratulations to your daughter for having uh, graduated and uh, moved on in, in that blue economy that she has uh, chosen as, as her, her home area, so to speak. So I work at Nova Southeastern University, which is a private not-for-profit uh, university in the southeast. Um, and we are, as such, being situated in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, uh, right very close to the beach, actually, as I'm looking out of my window, I'm looking at the intracoastal waterway uh, where there's a manatee flopping around. Um, as Because of that situation, we are part mm, of yep. the blue economy, uh-huh. uh, of, of which, you know, academia and education is, is, is a big part. The reason why I can yes. say with such confidence that we are indeed part of the blue economy is that a lot of what we do, our curricula, the way we teach, what we teach, is prejudiced on the environment where we're in. So we focus on tropical marine ecosystems within uh, our marine curricula, tropical, subtropical marine ecosystems, and we try to uh, uh, to embed whatever we do in this fantastic environment that we have around us. So I, in particular, I'm responsible for whatever happens in marine biology at the school at undergraduate and graduate levels. And um, it's a lot of fun because um, the ocean is uh, and the shorelines of, of, of this uh, wonderful continent are beautiful. And it's a real privilege being able to train young people in it. Oh, I love your attitude. That's so that's so true. I, I'm A lot of what we talk about on the show is inspiring the, the next generation of Blue economy leaders and marine conservationists, and uh, and it is it's a privilege to have that, and you've done well. Again, my daughter is a product of that, and uh, and I've shared some of our scuba diving exploits on previous shows. But uh, terrific. Well, let's let's just go a little deeper, and I, I wanted to maybe I think a good example of a nature based solution uh, to Jen Steger at NOAA was, and I, I got to correct when I first met you. Uh, it was one of your restoration projects you gave me a tour of. And if I'm correct, it, I think it was um, the uh, uh, the Snohomish Estuary. Isn't that right? You are correct. It was the Snohomish Estuary. Ah, tell us about it. Tell us about what, what that accomplished. And, um, and where, you know, there's a lot around it. And you were working with the Tulip Tribe. Let, let our listeners know what that was about. So that, um, that one is, I'll try to condense a very long story that took about 20 years into a minute or two. Um, in Snohomish County, in Washington State, it's in um, kind of mid-north Puget Sound in a place called the Whidbey Basin that is a huge salmon producer um, within the Puget Sound. Um, we have several Indian tribes, and we also had the fortune of having a very forward-looking county government that set aside a lot of land um, for a couple of reasons. One was for, you know, they were knowing that salmon were going to be listed and that they would have to do some mitigation for those salmon. They have very active tribal members and Indian tribes that are within that basin. And um, they are also one of those basins that is going to suffer from sea level rise and flooding and extreme weather. So, you know, a group of us working in that basin together over a span of 20 years have um, put together several projects 
um, a few of which you got to see, Tim. That was an amazing day. Um, it's been a long time since I had a day that was that amazing on the field, on a boat. Um, so we covered those sites. And you could see just by letting the river kind of do what the river was supposed to do, um, it was restoring habitat. Um, it was increasing flood storage capacity in the delta of Snohomish County by about 20%. Um, there's been a significant increase in the density of the fisheries in that area that we've been tracking. And since then, too, there's also a, um, a mitigation bank that has developed in that area, another 360 acres um, of restoration and flood storage capacity and productivity um, and, you know, mitigation for sea level rise. So that particular estuary is evolving to deal with um, sea level rise and using a lot of the traditional knowledge of the tribes and the foresightedness of the county governments to make it a place that's healthy for people, you know, walking trails, healthy for fish, healthy for the environment. And in bringing all that together, there's been a really remarkable um, trust structure that's been developed. So folks are speaking each other's language around flood control and uh, habitat management and fisheries. It's just, it's a, it's a wonderful place to be. I was so glad that you got a chance to see it. Well, it was very inspirational for me and in, in my later time and work at NOAA to see uh, the win-win that it represented in terms of restoration and, and, and the benefits to people, local economies. And uh, could you define for our listeners what a mitigation bank is or, and does? I think that's an important term that's associated with this, this estuary. Oh, um, yeah, I probably should have been a little bit more clear on that. Yeah, mitigate. Um, when you have a project that has an impact on the environment um, under authorities like the Clean Water Act or the Endangered Species Act, um, the action agencies, the federal government in this case, um, requires you to do some kind of an offset for the impact that you're going to have. Um, and mitigation bankers um, are, again, very foresighted. They produce areas to offset some of these in advance of any of the actions happening. And at least that was the case in the Snohomish. So impacts that are going to be occurring, that we know are going to be occurring in the port and other places, they're already creating an environmental lift currently to offset some of those actions. Right. That's, and I know that's becoming more, uh, I, think, I think a lot of investors are looking, looking to that. And, and let me go to Ito as, as a business, business owner. Um, I'm curious about now that your product has an environmental benefit. And are you seeing, like, for example, investors come to you who are looking to have, have a, increase their ESG, environmental social governance portfolio? Um, are they, have, you, have you been touching that at all? And have people been coming to you for that reason? This, what can you say about that, Ito? It's it's there's two maybe two answers to this question. First, regarding uh, uh, the people that are or the entities that are interested in, in a company like us, um, a lot of them are impact investors uh, that are uh, that are looking into uh, uh, different impact factors, um, as, and and ESGs is one of them. And so so and but also financial investors, which which are uh, uh, looking at the bottom line, and it's kind of of, of a mix of both. Um, our clients, on the other hand, um, it, it is our entities or basically asset owners uh, that need to maintain and build their, their infrastructure, and they need to comply with different requirements and different regulations. So mitigation, for example, is one of them. So they need to mitigate, they need to mitigate for, for the work that they're doing. And a lot of, in a lot of cases, um, there is not, let's say, uh, uh, either uh, 
there isn't uh, uh, an available mitigation bank that they that they can use and then uh, sometimes they're asked for a mitigation project so so they they, they need to just uh, go and, and do a kind of an off-site mitigation project that they're dictating in order to mitigate the work that they're doing on on, on their original site um, what we provide them is is a kind of a way to do mitigation on site and basically increase the ecosystem services on the infrastructure itself by by basically incorporating uh, um, uh, more nature inclusive technologies and and for example one of those projects that that, that used our technology is the living breakwater uh our project in uh at the tip of Staten island in new york so it's 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 a chain of of eight breakwaters that are now built to protect the town of tottenville that uh during superstorm sandy suffered not just from a surge but also direct wave impact and had a major issue of coastal erosion and and our technology and, and other environmental methods and and and, and system were were basically included in the design and the construction of, of those breakwaters. It's, it's actually now still under construction. Um, and by doing this, they, they managed to do mitigation on site and, and, and in a way create kind of a, a self-mitigating uh, project uh, uh, that with a very defined environmental targets, adaptive management and, and monitoring plan, and basically take the mitigation portion and portion that is needed and incorporate it in the construction of the structure. So a lot of our clients are, are have the same issues, and and that's the uh, basically the solution that we're providing them. And it's and it's and it's true both in in the U.S. in Europe, and and also now we're starting to see that in in other regions like uh, the GCC and the uh, Asia Pacific. Wow, that, yeah, you explained it so much better. I was kind of conflating ESG investing and in, in the actual clients you have, but uh, and that's such a brilliant idea to bake in the mitigation aspect of what what Jen had talked about with. Um, the mitigation banking kind of a contribution of the estuary restoration. So, so interesting. Um, can you get, how many, how many projects have you completed and how many years have you been in business and how many countries are you in? <laughs> so um, we, we, we were funded in 2012 and, and we did R and D and proof of concept almost until 2015 uh, when we started to implement the technology in, in different regions of the world. Uh, um, until now, we have more than uh, 40 uh, um, projects worldwide. All of them are, are infrastructure in uh, um, eight seas and, and 12 countries. So uh, um, really, we, we work from tropical environment to temperate environment. And, and a lot of the work that we do is, is basically coupling with, with the academia and with uh, research centers. So uh, uh, we work with uh, Dutch universities, then uh, Danish universities, also in the US with few universities, um, working with them in order to, to basically do the monitoring and, 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 and the performance evaluation of the infrastructure after installation. Wow, that's terrific. Well, you're really succeeding and I'm sure that there's your, the interest in what you do is only going to grow. Uh, let me go now to Bernard, Dr. Bernard Regal at Nova Southeastern University, and I really want to speak to you in your role as the director of the National Coral Reef Institute, because we know coral reefs are, are you know, excellent um, uh, mechanisms to re re reduce inundation, and, uh, and I know there's just a huge service that provides the state of Florida um, can, what can you say about that and, uh, and, and ways that we can enhance that, those kind of ecosystem services? Yeah, thank you, Admiral. Yeah, coral reefs are something beautiful, aren't they? I mean, we all like them. We like to look at them. Uh, and we're, we're always struck by the immense biodiversity 
that these systems carry. And in, in fact, coral reefs are the most biodiverse system if you look at the, at the space they cover and the species that are packed into there. But coral reefs are not only pretty, they are not only um, fantastic places where one goes to spend a holiday, exactly because one goes to spend a holiday there, they are worth a lot of money. In Florida alone, for example, it's believed that coral reefs um, <clears throat> are worth about seven billion, seven to eight billion dollars in contribution to the to the uh, uh, Florida economy, make, making about seventeen thousand jobs or something like that. That sounds like a lot, but if you believe that a lot of people come to Florida, particularly to uh, to go diving, for example, or go snorkeling, or have some experience with some fish, which in the end, in Florida, are mostly provided by these coral reefs, then you see that every other tourism job almost depends on these reefs somehow. So it's it's not only that we should conserve reefs for the same reason that we should conserve the Mona Lisa, because it's just you know, such a work of art and such a fantastic, unique thing that you don't want to destroy it. It's also that it would be pretty silly to allow them go down the tubes without trying to save them because we'd lose a huge source of income. Um, and and for Florida, a, a big attraction for the tourists that uh, that make up about, you know, 60% of, of uh, Florida's uh, blue economy. And so within the National Coral Reef Institute, we work towards finding solutions to solve issues facing these reefs. These are either conservation issues, how can we assist in the conservation? These are issues in understanding. If we don't understand uh, what what are the, the, the problems that these systems face, how can these problems be uh solved and um we're very grateful to the uh u.s taxpayer in that that some of the money that that comes on our way um uh, is 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 also provided by the taxpayer so we try to um provide good service to the nation by providing first class research that can help with the conservation of of this valuable ecosystem Indeed, you know, it's actually, I mentioned there are barriers to inundation, and I thought it was something like 20% of wave energy is is reduced, you know, by having a coral reef off a given shore. But you're right, there's all these other, I guess, nature-based solutions and services that reefs provide, whether they be for tourism, for just the sheer beauty, their, nat- their national treasures, and, and also their nurseries for fisheries. And um, interestingly, Bernard, uh, I work with, I'm on the board of directors for a, non, a, military, a veterans nonprofit called Force Blue that has done coral restoration work in Florida. And they set up a patch of, 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 of uh, Fort Lauderdale, actually, or no, Miami, pardon me, um, an area of the seafloor where they did a, a coral restoration project. And, uh, and I, I have the video. It's like as soon as they replanted it, some coral fish were attracted there and it was just, the effect was immediate. And, uh, and so it's just really neat to see them do that kind of work. And, uh, and thank you for your leadership and the research. I remember joining, uh, your university and you, I believe when we had that coral reef symposium in 2019, I think it was, uh, do you remember that? 
Yes, absolutely. And thank you very much for your a very interesting talk at that. Um, yeah, we try to uh, to assemble you know, thought leaders, so to speak, repeatedly, um, so that we can have a, a fresh look at uh, at the problems that that these reefs face. Because, as you rightly say, you know the the, the loss of structure in 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 reefs. Um, reduces their 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 usefulness as barrier even if the, the the reef structure itself might be there the loss of rugosity because so, so surface roughness uh, because the corals are gone um, leads to a, a less efficient interaction with the water body that goes over it therefore a loss in in, in uh, a wave breaking ability and that alone, is worth a lot of money, particularly for low-lying areas like Florida. So these restoration efforts, as they are under underway in Florida and in many other parts of the U.S. and the world, are incredibly valuable in in that they put structure back on these reefs, and hopefully will 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 help kickstart. Uh, the natural processes that that are increasingly being lost due to the uh, to the many stresses that these systems face. Right, right, indeed. Uh, well, that's interesting, Bernard. And on this topic of, of coral reefs as a, as a nature-based solution to either coastal resilience or you name it, um, I want to go back to Jen Steger with NOAA uh, because I, I visited a coral restoration site uh, that your office managed, and I don't know if you know much about it, on Calabra Island off Puerto Rico, do, do you know anything about that, Jen? Not very much, Tim. No, I'm sorry. <laughs> I hear about Calabra, Calabra um, quite a bit because I think it also has a damage assessment component with it. Um, but I, I could not speak to that very well. That would be Leslie Craig, my contact in the Southeast region. Oh, yeah, that's right. Well, you, you have great teammates there. But, you know, that's that's just one example of the diversity of projects that Jen's office um, undertakes. And so you're focused on the, of course, the Pacific Northwest, but your office, broad office of habitat conservation, did coral restoration off Puerto Rico and continues that. Um, but let's let's go ahead and kind of go back to where you're focused on. And you mentioned dam removal, and I think that is one of the most interesting efforts because I, I I never even really heard of the of the, such a thing. Can you maybe enlighten our listeners about what that does and how that uh, returning these environments back to their natural state what, what the benefits are to that oh sure tim i can do i, I definitely can do that um, one thing that i just wanted to bring up on the coral restoration is, is that we do have sites in hawaii that we work on and um, also off the coast of california and your engagement with force blue you know we would love to have them come back and do more kelp restoration in california and also engage in um, some of the coral nurseries we're developing with uh, the hawaii institute of marine biology in, in hawaii Oh, so well, if they are ever interested in doing that, we would love to connect with them. It just so happens that first off, I've been to the habitat site in uh, Hawaii uh, and that was beautiful. Um, I think it's the big island. Is that right? Yes. Yeah, that was beautiful. I, I did go there. And um, but also uh, in terms of my my forest blue connection, we just launched an initiative. Um, this is a great nonprofit that takes veterans and as a way to help heal them from a lot of the damage they have been done to them in, in combat uh, is putting them into restoration activities, uh, ocean restoration activities. And it's sort of a win-win, healing the, the warrior and healing the, the environment. 
And, and we have just launched, uh, Jen, and for our listeners, a 15 for 50 initiative where Force Blue is going to deploy to every National Marine Sanctuary that NOAA operates. There's 15 of them. And we're doing this in recognition of the 50th anniversary of the National Marine Sanctuary System. And at our board meeting yesterday, uh, we were just discussing what our next NOAA Sanctuary project should be. So um, I've got, I, I'm, I'm going to run with that, okay? And, um, and, and we're, we're, hopefully we'll, we'll be in touch on this one, Jen. Oh, thank you for that. Now, dam removal, let's talk about that. Yes, I can talk about dam removal. Um, so we can talk about dam removal. Um, first, you know, we, we a lot of times we're referring to them as fish passage barriers that we're trying to remove, um, which has actually been really helpful in launching our programs within the Restoration Center on the um, bi, uh, Bipartisan Infrastructure Bill, which there's a lot of fish passage, dam removal, barrier removal focus. Um, we do um, a decent amount of mid-scale dam removals um, in places in the Northwest and in California. Um, we, um, one of our claims to fame is opening up um, by removing three dams on the Rogue River in Oregon. We opened up around 350 miles of very pristine habitat um, just by removing that barrier, um, those three barriers. Um, and some of them were defunct energy uh, producing barriers. Uh, the um, another um, aspect of our dam removal, which is more kind of it's right sized for the restoration center, is in places that we have very large dams like the Elwha River or the Klamath. We have done work to set up the floodplain below the dams in a way that can better uh, handle the amount of sediment that's going to be flowing through those dams. That includes things, and this gets into some of the nature-based solutions where we would create areas where we've got engineered log jams um, to direct sediment and create more habitat for salmon um, rather than just burying everything below the dams. Um, and also, uh, you know, replanting and adding some structure above the, you know, the dams where the reservoirs are and are drained so that they get a kickstart into more habitat benefits right off the bat. So. We do a decent amount of uh, barrier barrier removal, dam removal around culverts to put uh, taking out culverts, putting in bridges. That's really a um, uh, a huge amount of our work in Alaska, in the southeast of Alaska, doing that kind of work. Just opening up the whole kind of riverbed so that the that the deltas can meander and that there's more habitat for the fish. Now, there's a good amount of scientific study that goes on before and after these projects. Is that correct? Yes, that is correct. Um, Elwha, in particular, we managed that. We did monitoring before and after the dam removal to track the fish and the sediment. Um, a lot of it is around the productivity of the fish and where they go. Um, but there is also a decent amount of work that looks at how the channels develop. Um, versus how what they look like historically. That's I love that, and and that's uh, that's what I really loved about your office is everything was very science based, and um, and that makes me want to go to Edo right now at E Concrete, and I, I was I'm very curious, uh, you know, you're have you have you done any peer reviewed papers on the, on what your the on what your uh, product how uh, how it benefits the environment or is that all proprietary? No, no, no. Actually, this we, we came from the academy, and 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 we see great importance of publishing and doing peer review papers, and 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 showcase the the data that we collect on the performance of of the technology and and, and the ability to uh, uh, uplift, create ecological uplift on on working waterfront. So so we publish 
at least one or two peer review papers every year. Um, and, and, they're, and they're accessible. And, and, and we do that in collaboration with different universities, as I mentioned. And, and maybe uh, a, a note on this, this is the, it's, it's connected to both this question and, and what you mentioned earlier. So that one of the main reasons we, we uh, managed to go forward and, and basically open the company and, and develop the technology was because of a peer review paper. So, so we, um, we, we presented our, in, in, in a conference, we presented our, our, our finding on, on findings on, on how we can modify concrete and, and bet, get a better recruitment of coral larvae, planulies. And on the, lucky us, but on the first row of in this con, in that conference, it, uh, set who uh, Dan Basta, Daniel Basta, who was the um, director of uh, NOAA Office of National Marine Sanctuaries at the time. Oh yeah, I know him. And he came to us after after we presented and said, "I really like what you're doing," and and but are you sure it's going to work everywhere? And we told him, you know, we did it in the Mediterranean, we did it in the Red Sea. Uh, we have a good sense of. The, the ability of working in tropical and, and, and temperate environment. And he told us, you know what, let's try it in really tropical and temperate environment. And, and he basically allowed us to run our experiments in, the, in, in different North sanctuaries. Uh, and, and we really? ran, our, and again, we ran our, our, our experiments for two years, uh, um, from 2012 to 2014, uh, both in the federal port of Key West uh, in, in, and also uh, um, in Thunder Bay, even in, 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 in really? fresh water of, yeah, of, of the Great Lakes. And, and that was a challenging, I must say, a very challenging site to, to work on. Um, so, so he really took, took a major part of, 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 yeah, of helping us proving the ability of the technology and, and getting us into the U.S. market. Oh, I am sold. Tell, tell me about the universities you work with to publish these papers. Um, it's, it's really depend because there, there's two aspects when we deal with, with coastal infrastructure. First, as biologists, for us, it's really important to show um, the, the ability to create ecological uplift, uh, bring, uh, you know, uh, create better values of biodiversity, uh, reduce the dominance of invasive species, etc. Um, but on the other hand, our clients are, 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 it's, it, it's are basically entities that are um, maintaining their asset in an environment which is very liability driven and performance driven. Think about breakwaters, ports, and seawalls, et cetera. So um, we run into parallel lines. One is, is showing the ecological and the biological performance, and the other is to uh, show the uh, structural performance. So in, in terms of structural performance, we, we, we work with the leading universities. We work with uh, Delft University in the Netherlands on, on hydraulic performance, uh, um, as, as the same as also with uh, uh, IH Cantabria in Spain. Uh, um, we work on the biological performance with uh, MAT now, for example, in, in the US. Uh, we worked with uh, uh, Bernardi Nova in the past. Um, we work with uh, Denmark University now on, on both uh, um, concrete performance and also uh, ecological performance with two different uh, departments. Uh, it's a major part of what we do is, is collaborating with the academy. Yeah, that's so good. Yeah, what a gold mine. I didn't know this about you. And, and that's just so valuable. Um, good to hear. Well, this is a great topic. I like this thread of, of scientific publications. And, and when in that area, you know, there's, there's, we have a pretty esteemed uh, guest here in that topic of Dr. Regal at NSU. Uh, you've published quite a bit. Would you mind on coral reefs? And I think you also um, are a geologist. Uh, how, how, what talk, talk to us about your most about how many papers you published and what, what, what your most recent ones are. 
Yeah, thank you for that. So, um, for for us in 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 academia, there's there's basically two currencies. One is um, our students that we produce and the the curricula we have. But in order to prove to our students, which are our primary customer, right, and the reason for our existence, in order to prove to them our relevance. We are called upon to, to be research active and to prove our relevance in the real world, because only then can we really provide an educational experience that, that that's worth something, right? That that um, really gives something to the to the students. And then, of course, also for the universities, it's a it's a good way of uh, making a, a, a small side income because um, researchers are usually asked to bring their own research funds and write grants. So um, that's something we do at at our university. It's a it's a it's a research level university. Um, research is very important, so we're being asked to write, and also it is very enjoyable writing. So I've I've produced i think i'm at 195 right now and peer reviewed holy cow wow yes you know it's you either enjoy it or you don't enjoy it i i enjoy writing so (laughs) i i write it doesn't it doesn't make you any smarter than anybody else but it allows you to say look there is some relevance to this work and with this we have something to offer Indeed. Wow. Now, a really important area um, when we talk coral reefs is uh, the stony coral tissue loss disease that's affecting the southeast and I know is spread over to Texas at the Flower Garden Banks. Uh, are you, are, are, I'm sure your university is actively researching that. Anything you want to share about that? Yeah, we're quite deeply involved, as as most people in the southeast and the, and the Gulf now are who deal with reefs. So what we've observed in coral reefs over the past decades already, and that started in the 70s, is that coral diseases have become a real problem. Now, the forestry world has been aware of this since the beginning of the 20th century. All I need to mention here is the chestnut blight, right? And and the, the... basically complete wiping out of the American chestnut, an ecosystem uh, engineering species that its disappearance caused huge issues in for, for, for a lot of animals, uh, simply because it was an important tree at the basis of the food chain that, that just died because of an introduced fungus. And um, a fungus from Asia, the trees in North America were naive to them and they all died. And similar things seem to have happened in, 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 in the marine realm where the trees of the ocean, so to speak, the corals, have since the 70s been exposed to series of diseases where the first outbreaks were by what we believe were native diseases that, that have been in the re- region before. But over the, over the last decade and two, uh, new diseases have come in which have left the coral scientific world quite baffled as to where these diseases come from and why they are so virulent. And the latest uh, iteration of this is the sclerotinian coral tissue, rapid tissue loss disease, which uh, is like a wildfire and, and the, the, the visual effect of this disease on 
coral groves is is very similar to a wildfire where before you have you know you have trees that look very healthy then it burns and then you've got a couple of stumps before you have before the tissue loss disease comes in you have groves of coral which are doing quite well and then you have just white skeletons so to this day we don't really know who causes this disease um, a lot of good brains are working on it um, people are working on uh, ways to treat the the symptoms so to speak um, anti uh, antibacterial ointments and creams have been developed that can be put uh, onto these uh, these corals, antibacterial and antiviral. So basically antibiotic creams go onto these corals. That helps a little bit with the dieback. But we don't know yet what caused it. Was it a virus? Was it a bacterium? Was it bacteria that normally live on the coral but due to a stress event then turned pathogenic? There's all sorts of uh, uh, possibilities. And uh, NOAA has rolled out... Uh, big uh, research efforts. We are part of this. We are going to roll out a big research effort, which which uh, Florida funds. And uh, we hope to find out how, at least what exactly these diseases are, why they are so virulent, and how they can be stopped. And uh, of course, you as thinking of COVID and as you swim as, as you know, uh, an organism made of the of similar proteins as a coral, uh, you swim over these reefs devastated by these disease outbreaks and you just wonder, well, what can we as a species learn from this, right? Oh, good point. Um, what do these outbreaks, what can they teach us about the increased degradation and the dangers of the increased degradation of our biosphere that we leave in our wake? Um, you know, does does the one thing have something to do with the other? And when is it going to hit us? I hope not so soon. But these are thoughts when it's very difficult to push these thoughts away from you as you look at the utter devastation that is being caused by these novel pathogens. Right. I, Bernard, I've seen this. I've been diving in the Florida Keys and uh, and it's just uh, over for years. And I've seen this wildfire is just a perfect description. I, you're absolutely right about it. You know, interesting, you know, I, I'm a kind of a, I look at both sides. So there's a lot of challenge that we have to worry about and, and that these challenges bring people together. And I, you mentioned the NOAA plan. I led the, the development of the NOAA strategy to, to um, respond and prevent the stony coral tissue loss disease. My Canals fellow, Dr. Lexa Scrivanek, basically wrote it. And, and now NOAA followed it and wrote an implementation plan to this strategy just this year. So and that, so you refer to the re research component of it, and uh, and so that that that's bringing people together to get at the problem, and that, at least that's something to be hopeful for. Um, but and then and we, when we we talk about this on the on this uh, the series, the show of mine about the challenges and also the potential solutions that bring people together, and and let me go to Jen Steger at NOAA because I I always I just love your agency, you know, and I, I always saw leaders like you um, putting forward. Um, uh, I guess, um, convening and using your convening power to bring people together to address challenges. And so I have to ask you for restoration, habitat restoration and your world. Um, what is the biggest challenge that you've seen and, and what, what, then what, what also, how are you responding to it? Oh gosh. Yes. With swinging yeah, with challenges, there are a bunch of opportunities, right? <laughs> um, 
So a lot of the challenges, um, especially if we're trying to, you know, kind of push the envelope and be a little bit more innovative in our thinking and how we approach restoration is that a lot of the agency's regulations are not, have not caught up with these solutions. And um, unlike Edo's um, uh, products, a lot of the suggestions, at least um, in California and the Pacific Northwest, around implementing some of the solutions, um, business problems like getting bonds for companies that want to take those kind of actions in particular places has been difficult. Oh, um, really? Yeah. So it's, um, I do think that our, you know, a lot of the agency's own regulations and guidelines are a little bit lagging in that arena. I think we're getting better. Um, I do think that there's a sense of urgency with climate and extreme weather coming at us. Um, so I think, you know, I think the, the science and the implementers are ready. And you also mentioned bringing people together. You need, you know, engineers, but you also, in some cases, you need farmers, you need, you know, people with property, you need people that have local knowledge. Um, it's not just the scientists, it's also a lot of the practitioners that you need to bring together to solve that kind of an issue. Good point. Yeah, that's good. That's really good, Jen. Um, I, I, I'd like to come to Ido. When I've been kind of preaching in, in a lot of things about climate resilience, uh, and, and it certainly applies on the coast, um, is in bringing in the private sector uh, because you know at least in the weather the weather and climate space and the ocean space there's some great technology out there to do the monitoring and, and to help uh, with decision making uh, in terms of new tools that are data driven and a lot of AI machine learning going into them and uh, and so you know again as a as a representative of industry I think I think. You know, you are offering now a solution which is, is terrific, and I'm curious about how um, the partnerships you have with any with either governments or or like you said, you mentioned all your universities. Are you are you working with state, local, and uh, even any federal governments? Um, yeah, yes, we are. Uh, we we work in in really our our mo most of our clients are either uh, say it's B two B or B two G. Um, so, so, so we work in, in different levels. For example, uh, we have a project that we work directly with the European Union. So uh, um, we, we are, for example, now uh, running a project at the Port of Vigo in Spain um, under the, uh, a grant that we uh, got from the European Union of almost 3.5 million euro, where we are um, modifying the infrastructure of this uh, port, which is the largest fishing port in Europe. And, and replacing seawalls within the basin, um, as well as portions of the breakwater, uh, in order to be more uh, nature inclusive and, and support uh, um, ecosystem services. It's, and, and, and in a way, it's, it's allowing us to, uh, the ability to, to, to provide our client, or let's say the, the entity that we're working with, with exactly what they want. So um, in this case, we work directly with uh, um, the European Union that are looking for data and looking for uh, um, applicable technologies that they can, that they can uh, uh, use in different regions of, of the European Union. Um, the port is, is, is interested in, in monitoring data and ecological uplift. We are interested in, in showcasing uh, uh, the technology. And, and, and because of that, we're making sure that we incorporate different entities that can you know, monitor the, the, the project, uh, process the data, and publish. So in this case, as I mentioned, we work with Denmark University. That is, that is a third party monitoring the performance uh, uh, for the client. 
And and I think this is a major and, and something that is super important that, that um, um, there's always going to be a third party uh, assessing performance. Uh, we, 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 for example, um, insist that in all of our projects we'll have a control site. So either, even if the client is not in, interested in doing a monitoring because sometimes it's, it's not in their budget or, 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 or other reasons, we insist that there's going to be a monitoring uh, a control site that you can be that can be compared to the site that where the uh, technology was done or what we, how we call it where, that was treated um, and and was done at the same time. So so even if six, five, ten years from now someone will arrive to the site he will have a reference that he can use uh, 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 for doing uh, uh, assessment. Um, we also provide our clients with the monitoring plan. So, uh, um, and, and, and pushing them to, to find and, and to identify a third party that can provide them that service. The reason we do that is, is, is maybe related to what we discussed earlier of, of publishing the data. Um, we, we collect the data from, as I mentioned, more than 40 projects worldwide, and we want to make sure that we can compare them one-to-one. And in order for doing this, uh, it's, it's, it's very important that it will be the same monitoring prog prog uh, program and, and that we, we uh, the same effort, monitoring effort, will be done in, in, in the different regions. So we're basically providing them with, with a plan, and, and they can use it in order to uh, um, you know, start a process of identifying an entity that can, can help them with this. That's terrific, Ido. I applaud your your scientific discipline and rigor. That that's uh, as I know from my experience at NOAA. That's just really how how any sound conservation uh, work should be done. And um, and here you are. This is uh, this this kind of idea of working with different entities, partnerships, is uh, something I want to ask Bernard about. I I read that you published or you've done research in the Red Sea, Arabian Gulf, Indian Ocean, South Pacific. Eastern Pacific, Tropical Atlantic, and Caribbean, all places I've been. Um, I'm, and I wish I have scuba dived them all, but only about half. Uh, but um, what, what are your most active partnerships right, right now, Bernard? Basically, in, in, in any area one goes and works, one, one would go and, and search a partner there. Uh, the Middle East is, is, for me, a very, very important and productive area, uh, in particularly the uh, the, in particular, the Persian Gulf region, uh, and that because it's at the forefront of uh, climate change effects. The Persian Gulf is a very shallow sea uh, with, with an amazing biodiversity, actually, but that is heating very quickly. The, the whole Arabian region, that Middle Eastern region, is heating up very quickly and shows us, gives us a glimpse into uh, tomorrow's tropics, if you will, uh, what the tropics will be like at around 2100, sort of. It depends which climate forecast scenario one takes. And um, we work together with local scientists there or other U.S. institutions. NOAA, of course, is a, is a, is a big collaborator always because NOAA is just such a a hothouse, if you will, of good <laughs> people and, and interesting yes. people. Um, so, uh, yeah, uh, in general, in, in, in my work and as the Institute in our work, we tend to find um, sites that can respond to a question. Uh, the, 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 the Middle Eastern region, Persian Gulf, allows us to ask, well, what will a really hot world look like? So what is the, the forefront of the, of the heat question? 
um, answer for us. If we go to other areas where it's really cold, like the Galapagos, for example, there we have, even though it's right in the tropics, we have a quite cold water systems. There we can ask, well, what will these upwelling systems, whether upwelling will change with climate change, how will that be influenced um, with in, in that new climate? And will these uh, reefs be able to survive? The reason why we want to ask these questions is because the coral belt gets squeezed basically on two sides. It gets it gets squeezed from the inside out. Its core, which is tropical, gets hotter and hotter. And corals being heat uh, sensitive start dying there. And at the edges, it it just the 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 the, the climatic variability gets higher and higher. And corals also don't do too well with the climatic variability. So. Basically, we're trying to find out who, where are the where are the Goldilocks places where these poor things can survive into future. There's plenty still left, so we don't need to be uh, uh, be despondent yet. And our good friends at NOAA, for example, they work very hard on on, on conserving uh, good areas. Um, but that's what we do, by and large. Oh, great! I never knew about this uh, Middle East connection. I don't. You probably didn't know this, but. I've been scuba diving in the Arabian Gulf or Persian Gulf and the Arabian Sea. In fact, uh, the coral reefs off Oman are are brilliant, really. And but I did go diving off Bahrain, and and yeah, the, this was years ago though, so I haven't seen them recently. Um, but yeah, and the biodiversity was was extraordinary. We've seen whale sharks and even humpback whales in the area. Yes, uh, fascinating. Um, good. You know, um, we're we're kind of coming at the end here, but I've just enjoyed this discussion so much and uh, our three great guests. Uh, I want to turn to Jen and uh, a little thing about, not a little thing, an interesting item about Jen that I, I've learned about you is that um, Jen Steger with Noah's Restoration Center, you have a Wharton Executive Education Certificate in Leading in Challenging Times. Um, how's that working out? Are you applying it like every day? Well, during COVID, you bet. <laughs> um, we, yeah, um, the, that, I, you know, I can't, talk about the Wharton executive program enough. They, they have a lot of different leadership programs. This one in particular was fairly short um, and was focused on, you know, dealing in challenging times such as dealing with trauma and working your way through that. Um, and the, the, the principles and the leadership and the authenticity and being transparent and accessible and keeping things in perspective a lot of things really reminded me a lot, Tim, of your leadership principles that you put forward while you were at NOAA and still. Um, and those kind of principles, I think, were, I'm lo- really looking forward to your book on the same subject. So um, the, the li- I would definitely kind of ho- shout out to the Wharton Leadership Executive Program and can't wait to see your book as well. So thank you. <laughs> uh, no, you're welcome. I, I, I didn't necessarily want you to make a plug, but thank you. Um, but but we'll go, that, uh, that's what I do love about you, having known and observed you. And um, you are always working to support the term servant leader is, is just perfect for your describing you. And just always looking to bring people up. And um, if I, you know, if I gleaned any of that during my time at NOAA from you and applied it, I, then I think I, I might have done some good. But you're right. I am going to publish a book called Holding Fast in Heavy Seas leading America's top ocean agency in turbulent times and uh, talk about my leadership lessons from the Navy and how I hopefully did some good with them at NOAA, but that'll be a whole nother episode. (laughs) Anyways, 
But is Jen, is there anything else you want to share on the topic of nature-based solutions as we come to a close? Um, yes, thank you. Um, you know, when you asked me about, um, you know, things that are um, obstacles, um, I like to turn to what, the, at least the group that I work with, we strive for is that, you know, we would really like to see a resurgence or a surgence of a restoration economy where people are looking at how they're optimizing a landscape in ways that are um, helping everyone that lives in that place. And in doing that kind of work, it creates jobs, it connects people, it shares information, it embeds um, science into things that we would do. So the changing that kind of a culture and building that kind of trust is something that we strive for every day. And um, it's difficult, but it's a worthy task. And the team that I work for at NOAA and all the others, you know, there's a lot of people in this environment, but um, I'm really proud of that. And I feel very lucky and very fortunate to be associated with folks that think like that. And, you know, for our career, you know, changing culture takes a long time, um, but it's definitely a worthy cause. So I think I'll just stop there. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. That was a great uh, contribution. Thank you so much, Jen. Uh, let's come to Dr. Ido Sella at eConcrete. Ido, I saw that your company was named in 2019 as, as one of Time's 100 Best Inventions of the Year. Uh, well done to you. You'd only been in, in existence for just a few years. Is, is that is that right at that time? Yeah, yeah, it was uh, <clears throat> really a great uh, for us. It was a great acknowledgement. I think there is a shift in 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 the last five years. Of, of looking into climate technologies and, and there is an understanding across, you know, really wide on, on that we need to do to make a change. And for us dealing with, with coastal infrastructure and, and with the impact of, uh, of, of coastal construction, I think we're, we're in the right time, at, at, you know, when, when there is an acceptance that we need to address those issues really in an area in, that in the past were, were not included. Well, you're doing it great. Yeah, I've read that in the last decade, just in the topic of marine conservation, there's been a, a, a doubling of investment uh, to a total of around $2 billion worldwide in marine conservation efforts. And um, But anyways, uh, your, your company, Concrete, is really, I think, innovative and performing an, a really critical need. Anything else you want to share with our listeners uh, on the topic of nature-based solutions before we go? Maybe one last thing. <clears throat> And, and, and is, is a little bit of a perspective. Um, 60% of world population resides along coastlines, and, and which means that most of us are, are, are on the coastline. And, and, the, and the population that is on the coastline is basically uh, um, increasing their size uh, twice as fast as the rest of the population uh, in the world. So, so we, we put immense pressure on our waterfronts and most of the people that on, on Earth are not experiencing pristine uh, uh, waterfronts anymore. So, so we need to take all the knowledge that we have from nature-based solution and, and apply them into the real world. world. And, and this is basically what we're trying to do. And we're pushing others to, to find new technologies and other methodologies that can be incorporated into the way that we basically um, reinforce our, our barrier with, with the waterfronts. Perfect. That's great. Well, amen. Uh, good job there. Keep it up. Ido, thank you for being here. And uh, then let's close with Bernard Regal, Dr. Bernard Regal at Nova Southeastern University. 
Bernard, uh, I saw that, and I have to point out to our listeners, you received the uh, Provost Research and Scholarship Award in, I think, 2019. And, as, um, and I just want to congratulate you on that. Uh, what was, what was your, the work that you were, was cited for you earning that award? Thank you very much. Thanks for the kind words. Well, like uh, most institutions, we also uh, uh, like to have a little bit of uh, well-meaning internal competition, and then uh, it's it's uh, being uh, evaluated who who's been good and and and, <laughs> and done what what was asked or what we are supposed to do, namely to produce innovative results um as said earlier we are we are here to train tomorrow's leaders and we can only train tomorrow's leaders if we keep ourselves at the cutting edge of knowledge and so uh these these awards are there to acknowledge if people try to do that that is really a wonderful perspective on uh on on receiving an award is putting it back on the purpose of of bringing up others, the next generation. That's just delightful. Um, it's just been so great to get to know you, Bernard. Do you have any final words for our listeners on the topic of nature-based solutions? My final words would be not to lose hope. Uh, you know, it um, as with so many things, we hear many bad news, and we hear many bad news about nature, and we hear many bad news about uh, what, what's happening around us. And it's it's so easy to say, ah, well, I can't do anything, I can't change anything. But that's not true. Uh, the power is really in all of us, as, as for example, Ido has shown with, with his company, right? A good idea and a will to do something can change a whole lot. And as, as your own work, um, Tim, and, and Jennifer's work has shown, we can and all within our remit, whether whether we have a lot of uh, responsibility or less responsibility, we can we can do things and we can change things if we just bring the right approach and the right respect for our environment. And I would just like to call particularly for the next generation who are going to take over from us and who are going to take over. A very changed planet with with many more issues than our generation had to take over to to not lose hope to not lose goodwill, but to keep working on these um, on these solutions. We are a very smart species, and just as we find ways to break many things, we can find uh, ways to fix things, and we just have to work very hard on being innovative on how to fix things. Um, that will be tomorrow's challenge, but I'm sure the coming generations will uh, will rise to that. No, that was so well said, Bernard, and my daughter being one of those of the next generation, educated at your fine university, Nova Southeastern, um, she gives me hope. So that was a great, great closer. And I just want to thank everybody. What an awesome show this was in this latest episode of the American Blue Economy podcast, where we looked at nature-based solutions with a diverse and fascinating group of guests from the government and the private sector and academia. Please join us for our December episode. Haven't picked the topic, but send me your thoughts. This is your host, Admiral Tim Gallaudet, CEO of Ocean STL Consulting. Thank you for joining us, shipmates. I look forward to getting underway with you next time. Mm -hmm.